The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hi, well, hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am Capital Weekly Editor-in-Chief Rich Eisen, joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm well, Rich. Thanks. We all know the March 5th primary is coming up, and we're all very interested in that, of course. And uh, to get the latest on what has been happening uh, with early voting and what could be happening as we move to the uh, inevitable conclusion of this beginning of the election season, we've brought in our old friend, Paul Mitchell, who uh, knows as much about what's going on with polling and data as anybody out there. So, Paul, how are you doing today? Doing good. It's, uh, you know, the home stretch here of a primary that I think a lot of us have been anticipating for a long time. And, uh, you know, it's finishing off with maybe not a bang like we would have hoped. It's kind of finishing off with a whimper, but uh, it's coming along. Well, uh, along those lines, and what, tell us what's going on. I mean, I know we, we have some information on what has come. People have been voting, of course, here in California by mail for uh, for a little while now. Where are we at? What are what are some of the things that are standing out for you so far from what you're seeing? Yeah. So the big top line is that, uh, you know, we've had as of this morning uh, from all the data we collected at PDI, 1.3 million ballots have been returned. And that's a couple hundred thousand fewer ballots than was returned by this point in the 2022 gubernatorial primary. Historically, in California, gubernatorial primaries are the lowest turnout, and a presidential primary should be higher. Um, This, at the big macro level, points to potentially the lowest turnout that we've seen in a presidential primary in the state's history. Um, The previous record was the 2012 primary, where it was Romney on the Republican side, Obama on the Democratic side, and it was a June primary, so it already had been decided. And so we had really low turnout in 2012. Uh, we should have, you know, 30% or less turnout, which is remarkably low for what should be a high turnout election. Although on the presidential race, just both presidential primaries seem to be uh, over effectively. And so that's really sinking turnout. Now, what's interesting about low turnout is that turnout doesn't drop evenly for all groups. So if you were to look at it as an example at the uh, people who are really dropping in terms of their share of the electorate right now, uh, independent voters are roughly 30% of the voters registered. They're less than 20% of the voters that have returned a ballot. Uh, Young people, 18 to 34, are a quarter of the electorate, and they are right now a whopping 8% of people who have returned a ballot. Whoa. And Latinos are 28% of the electorate, but only 14% of voters who've returned a ballot. So we have this dynamic in a low turnout election so far where the electorate is older, whiter, more affluent uh, than in prior elections or in a high turnout scenario. And that's, it does a couple things. One is it really deflates overall numbers and distorts the population that's voting, but also it can have these interesting impacts in races. So think of like the U.S. Senate race. Steve Garvey's really got to like these numbers. Yeah. So this is the kind of electorate with more Republicans voting than, you know, than kind of the relative registration rate that it does inflate Steve Garvey's numbers. And we're seeing that in 
uh, our own tracking of people who've returned ballots already. We've gotten surveys completed from about 4,000 Californians so far who've returned a ballot. And we're asking them who they voted for in a lot of these races. And uh, we're seeing in a situation like the U.S. Senate race that Steve Garvey is clearly in the second spot because a lot of these early votes from Republicans are pushing him up. And then we're also seeing this dynamic in a lot of the legislative races where you might think, oh, my local state Senate race is going to be two Democrats in the general. But the tracking is showing that an elevated Republican turnout early could be launching Republicans into the runoff position. So there's a lot there uh, to watch. You know, I find that really interesting, too, especially at the state level. But, you know, we've talked before, you know, this the person I think that is suffering the most from this scenario is probably Katie Porter, right? Because she let, in a way, maybe she didn't focus her campaign on Adam Schiff early enough. And now she's far enough behind that it's easy enough for Schiff to, to help bolster Garvey in, in several ways, correct? Yeah, that's a really interesting thing, because in a lot of these campaigns, you have the campaign itself and then the independent expenditure. And they might see a scenario of, you know, you could use the U.S. Senate race as an example. Hey, we're so far ahead right now in the polling. Let's get a Republican into the runoff. And it's a real tricky decision to make because you're effectively risking that if your polling's off, that you end up in third place, the Republican and your opponent go to the runoff and you just boxed yourself out. It would be a complete fail to accidentally get the Republican in the runoff and then you don't make the runoff. But with the polling showing Schiff having such an advantage earlier, it opened up that strategy to him. And we see that in legislative races too. As an example, in the Sacramento assembly race in the last election cycle, it was Kevin McCarty versus Josh Pane, and everybody expected that to be the general election. But close to election day, Kathy Wright, I think was her name, was the Republican that the Kevin McCarty folks promoted, got her into the runoff, boxed Josh Pane out entirely so that he didn't make the runoff. That strategy was available to Kevin McCarty because his polling showed that he was leading by such an amount that he could just basically end the election right there. Um, so we're seeing that play out in a lot of races. And it's a really tricky calculus of, you know, is my candidate far enough ahead where I can risk doing this without it backfiring? And uh, we're definitely seeing that the shift campaign and it's an independent expenditure think that it is worth that risk. And they are effectively, I think, pushing Garvey into that second spot. So yeah, but he how can is this... How is this polling environment uh, impacting or how would you predict it's going to impact Prop 1? Well, that's really interesting. You know, Prop 1 is on a president on a presidential primary ballot. Um, it was put on there by the legislature. Ballot measures can't actually be put on the primary ballots by voters, in part because the legislature and lawmakers in, in Sacramento saw that primary turnout can be so volatile and erratic but they didn't want to have ballot measures on that ballot. They wanted to have ballot measures on a general election ballot where more, vote, more voters can cast ballots. The governor's team decided to put this measure on the primary ballot because in their modeling, the ballot measure would pass effectively even with a more volatile primary turnout. Um, it would have done better on a general election ballot, but maybe they predicted the general election ballots would be crowded with other 
spending measures. And so they wanted to put it as a standalone here in the primary. Um, I presume that it will still pass, um, but it, I think, will be potentially closer than it might have been in a high turnout election. And we're not actually tracking that measure yet. Sorry, Paul, how, how do the numbers look on that so far? Are you tracking that? We're not tracking that one yet. Um, we could still add it to our uh, our survey, but we hadn't been tracking it yet. Anything else that stands out from any of this, uh, you know, that would allow you to maybe make some other predictions here? Well, I mean, we are looking at a, a number of races. I think the big thing is uh, the number of races that are going to have, you know, Republicans making the runoff. And I think that's something that as we get closer, we'll continue to look at this exit polling that we've done. The exit polling, like I said, is at 4,000 people statewide. But when you're looking at your average assembly, congressional, Senate district, you know, 140th or 180th of the state's population, um, we just aren't getting real good numbers, enough respondents to, uh, you know, tell us uh, more predictably what's happening in these races. So we're going to just continue to monitor those. This polling we do is to help inform our our writing at Capital Weekly and to help inform you um, in the process. We don't do a lot of actually putting this out and making it public, but we do use it to kind of help inform, you know, our writing. So is there any data at all about uh, the Vince Fong race down in Bakersfield to replace uh, Kevin McCarthy? Uh, I mean, the general wisdom is that President Trump's endorsement is obviously going to be a huge help for him in a in a district that is very, very, very conservative. I mean, have you seen any data indicating anything there? We haven't seen any good data down there. And in fact, a lot of the Central Valley um, is harder to poll. Um, you get smaller poll responses. And in fact, in Kern County, we don't even have any data except I think maybe we just got it today on who'd returned a ballot already in Kern County. So the voters that we would need to go to to get that kind of survey done, uh, I don't think we even had that data yet. So um, we could see something down there. That is obviously a strange election because you have a primary. Voters have received the ballot for that primary election two weeks ago. They're also gonna have a special election and voters are due to receive the ballot for the special election any day now. Um, they're going to have this confusing situation where they have two elections kind of on top of each other. Um, and I think that that's going to, you know, really be a challenge for those campaigns. Well, Paul Mitchell is always very, very informative. We really appreciate you coming in today. Um, as, as we always say here, you know, we're, we're all eyes are on the, on the next election and this is an election year. And as you noted, there's going to be a lot of them, depending on where you live. <laughs> You're going to have several opportunities to vote whether you want to or not. Right. They're, the opportunity will be there for uh, some folks in the state to vote multiple times this year. And uh, not in the way that critics of the system say these are legit votes. Right. So absolutely. Paul Mitchell, thank you very much. We always appreciate you coming in. Uh, we're going to be back here with. Employment Development Department uh, Deputy Director Ron Hughes is going to tell us a little bit about the big initiative that is being undertaken there right now at EDD. Thanks, Paul. Take care, guys. Thanks. Ron Hughes is the man tasked with overseeing one of the biggest modernization programs uh, in actually in California state history 
Uh, it is the multi-year, multi-billion dollar EDD Next project, which is intended to modernize pretty much every task the EDD does. It is a massive effort, and uh, Ron is here today to give us an update on how it's all going. So, uh, Ron Hughes, thanks for being here today. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Happy to be here. Great. Well, let's start with the basics. Uh, for the uninitiated, uh, give us a quick rundown on uh, on the EDD Next uh, project. Uh, what exactly does this project entail, and you know what's the what's the uh, genesis of all this? Sure. So um, EDD Next, the short version is it's a modernization of the way EDD does business with its its customers. Um, it's taking a customer centric approach, but but it is a technology project and it is a technology modernization project. When everybody thinks of EDD Next, they often think of this being one big project, but it's really not. It's seven separate projects. We call them work streams, so seven separate separate work streams. And they're all based on lessons we learned during the pandemic. Obviously, during the pandemic, there were challenges. The first challenge really was uh, we had a legacy technology for our uh, claims intake portal. So when we went from 200,000 people applying for unemployment to, to millions, that didn't work very well. Uh, people couldn't get logged on. So that was one of the first things we fixed. And by the way, we, we prioritized the improvements based on what would have the biggest impact on the public. So we focused on the, the shared customer portal first. We uh, implemented a Salesforce-based shared customer portal. We call it MyEDD, uh, which is infinitely scalable, solved the problems that we experienced during the pandemic. And that was actually implemented um, in June of last year. Second problem we had, obviously, if people couldn't log on, they called. We went from, again, hundreds of thousands of people calling to millions, just simply overwhelmed the system. We had a legacy contact center solution. We've since procured uh, AWS Connect, which is a, a, a much more modern platform. Uh, and get, it's going to give us the tools to, to handle that volume of calls should they occur again and give us things like scheduled callback, uh, voice response, chatbots, et cetera, all the things you'd expect in a modern contact center. Another challenge was the forms we use. We have 3,200 forms at EDD. They hadn't been touched in 20 or 30 years. So there are a lot of redundant questions. It wasn't clear what we were asking. So again, our approach is to modernize based on the, the, the things that will have the biggest impact on the public. So we looked at what form does the majority of the public use when they interact with EDD. It's the, the initial applications form for unemployment insurance. So we, uh, we went through that form. We eliminated 40% of the questions. We're in the process of simplifying language. We're going to do that for all 3,200 forms eventually. And then we, we didn't do a great job of communicating during the pandemic both with the public and with our own employees. So we look, we're look, we looking to use social media to be more effective at communications. So we actually have procured some tools to allow us to use social media to communicate with the public and with our employees. Obviously fraud was a problem during the pandemic. Um, they implemented Thomson Reuter and IDME uh, as some ID proofing and fraud prevention solutions. We just recently procured a frictionless uh, ID proofing solution, doesn't require you to download documents or upload documents. 
is so, I'm sorry, is, uh, is that what frictionless means? I've never heard that term. Yeah, it it it's uh so we we believe that somewhere between 90 and 97% of the people applying for unemployment benefit will be able to uh, go through the secure system without having to provide any documentation. It uses public available records to validate IDs. So that's really what frictionless means. There's no no friction on the part of, of the customer. Uh, we enhanced our fraud and data analytics. Um, and then obviously we have fraud, we have we have a cybersecurity fraud prevention group that we established. Um, and well, then the last thing. Let me cut in there for just a, a, a sec a moment here because you noted that these are really technology projects and there's right. seven of them. That is a tremendous task unto itself. If one Absolutely. would be a tremendous task unto itself. And and just to be really honest, California has not always had such a great track record with, with innovating technology. So, I mean, you've taken on a Herculean task here how is it all going, you think, on, on that front? And, and by the way, we should note here, some of the vendors that you've brought in here are the likes of Salesforce and Amazon, uh, and you've mentioned a few others. Please give me, a, give me a sense of how the technology transformation is going, especially when you're trying to do all these at one time, and then maybe how the relationships have been with those particular groups of vendors and, and those maybe I haven't even mentioned. Yeah, I mean it, it. It is a challenge, and 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 Rich, when I first got here, they were going to do it all as one big project, and so the first thing I did was break it up into different work streams. We can manage multiple work streams, but trying to do it all at the same time would be a would be a real challenge. And so these, you know, it seems like these projects are being done concurrently, but the reality is. They're all phased. So like, for example, we've got this, the Salesforce-based shared customer portal up and running. We're in the process of getting the contact center using AWS Connect up and running. The online enhancements, we've already done the, the, the UI initial application intake form. We purchased all the social media tools. We're, we're in the process of implementing it. And it's a different group. It's not EDD Next that's doing this. Um, the ID proofing and data analytics, we've already, we're already looking at data from those solutions right now to see what difference it's going to make. Uh, but again, it's a different group doing the implementation of, of uh, the ID proof, the secure ID proofing solution. The document management system that's uh, in process right now, it's probably a year out before we start implementation. So they're not all being done at the same time. You're right, it is a Herculean task. Just a tremendous amount of projects that we're doing. So you mentioned when you came in, what is your background? How did how did this project <laughs> land in your lap? Um wow. So uh I I was I worked for the state in, in IT for 22 years. Um the last big project I did before I left was um I was the director of Y2K testing for the state. So we finished Y2K, I left, formed a data center design and engineering company, did that for 12 years. Um, a friend of mine was working for the Brown administration, called me up and asked me if I'd consider applying for the uh, director of the Office of Technology Services, basically run the state's data centers. Um, so I ended up doing selling my company, coming back to the state in 2012, um, 
was the director of the state's data centers for a couple years, and then the chief deputy state CIO for a year. And then in 2015, I retired, um, did nothing for two years, basically enjoyed retirement. Um, and then frankly, I got bored. And so I started, I had a couple people approach me, um, Shared Services Canada, they were trying to consolidate all of their federal data centers into three or four. Um, they were spending billions of dollars and accomplishing nothing. So they bought myself and four other executives in to, to put together a path forward for them. So I did that for a couple of years, um, did, did a series of projects, moved CalHERS from their on-premise data center into AWS, um, and then um, kind of retired again. I bought a ranch, uh, started raising cattle and sheep, and thought I was done with technology. And um, some friends of mine, again, that worked at EDD called me up and said, hey, we've got this EDD Next project. We really need some help. Can you come back a couple of days a week and help us? <clears throat> so I, I, I talked to the director, uh, Nancy Farias, and uh, basically we agreed I'd be an advisor to her and come back a couple of days a week. And, you know, honestly, Tim, I think I worked six days the first week and six or seven the second. And I pretty much called Nancy up and said, it's not going to work me doing this part time. This is a huge project. Um, I need to be full time on it. And that's well, kind of how it occurred and how I Do came Do you have back. any regrets? <laughs> <laughs> well, my horses miss me. I don't get to ride them as often as I used to. But uh, no, I mean, honestly, I think you have to be challenged. And this is definitely a challenging project. Well, let me ask you another thing here, too, because you, you uh, following up on something you said earlier, which was, you know, EDD dealt with fraud and it dealt with a lot of delays and, and you know, people were so frustrated. And as you noted, the system was incredibly antiquated. So yeah. I think there's two two parts here that are it's most interesting to me. One, um, do you think... How do you think that the public is perceiving you now? I mean, I know this project's going to take till I think I read 2028 is when it maybe will be fully built out. And as we know, things can happen that maybe we'll even extend that out. But, you know, it's in process. We'll take at least another four years. But even so, do you think things are improving, that the public is maybe regaining a little bit of its trust in EDD, number one? And then I guess the other part of all this is, you know, if not, how do you handle that? I mean, how how prepared are you to to because especially we know how how much technology changes. You invest all of this time and energy, and then the technology that you're maybe working with now already evolves. I mean, I think you know that better than I do. You know how how prepared are you to not get caught flat footed again the way EDD got caught flat footed this time? So, so I'll I'll address the technology issue first. Um, we, uh, we we agree. We we don't want to implement a new technology and find out that it's outdated by the time it's implemented. And that's been a challenge in the state in the past. Um, so we're doing incremental improvements. Basically, we're implementing a solution. And then every three to six months, we enhance that solution. So we keep it current. So it's kind of like continuous improvement throughout the, the life cycle of the, the technology. That way, it's never outdated. So that that's our approach to technology. Um, the first part is we just haven't done a great job of communicating. I mean, look, the the shared customer portal that's a huge improvement over what we had before. Um, 
AWS Connect, again, that's a, going to be a huge, you know, we haven't finished implementing yet, but that's going to be a huge improvement for the public when they have to call in. Um, the, the forms redesign effort, again, that's going to be a big improvement. That's actually online now. Um, so we are making positive changes. We don't do a great job of communicating. I'd like to do more of these types of programs so I could talk about what EDD is doing because we... We do listen to the public. I mean, we, we've we've heard from the public that we can't get logged in. You don't answer the phone when we call. Um, so we're we're trying to fix all those things. But as you guys know, it's it's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's it's a years long process, and we're trying to fix the things that affect the public the most first. Well, I think one of the challenges you face would be that people only interact with the EDD in a, for most people, I think a fairly infrequent amount of time. I mean, you don't even think about the EDD. You don't think about it even existing until you need it. Uh, it's not like social media where you're going on Facebook once a day or once a week or whatever. Uh, like on EDD, you might be going on it once every five years or something like that for most people. So uh, I could see how people's perceptions are going to be shaped by the last time they were on it. And then they're not going to be on it again for years, maybe. Yeah. Well, and and it's one of the worst times of their lives. I mean, that's the other yeah. thing I think that's a real challenge for you is that nobody goes to ED. It's not EDD for, you know, to get birthday presents. I mean, let's face it, you're going to EDD because you've lost your job. And because of the rules, I mean, for the most part, you have lost your job. You've been terminated. And, and so people are not in a good mood. They're not in a good space. They might be in desperate circumstances. So delays or you know a feeling of maybe not being heard not being considered is more it's it's dramatic for people in a way that going to maybe another agency isn't dramatic that has to be also a tremendous challenge it is and we're, we're not we get compared to dmv all the time we're not like dmv people don't regularly interact with us they might interact with us once in their lifetime maybe twice um so yeah that that that's a bit of a challenge well I guess, I mean, it, it seems to me you're obviously, you know, feeling optimistic about all of this. And I noted the timeline 2028. How do you feel in regard to where you're at with that timeline? Um, I haven't heard or read of any major disasters that have happened to EDD since since you've started this. But I mean, you know, we we don't we don't know when another pandemic may happen or, you know, some crushing budget thing. You know, we're in a bad budget year now. How do you feel about where you're at in the timeline that you have established for yourself to get all these projects wrapped? Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm very comfortable with where we are. I mean, um, we we've implemented the Salesforce solution. We're implementing the AWS solution for the contact center. We're in the process of modifying the forms. Um, we're close to awarding the solution for for our document management system. So all those things will be big improvements that will allow us to be more efficient. The public, you know, they'll probably see the shared customer portal and the integrated contact center, but what they won't see is the document management solution will allow us to process their claims much more quickly. Um, so it's going to definitely be a benefit. And that's an implementation that we'll be starting in the next six months. Um, so I think I think I'm I'm really comfortable. The, the, the challenge is, um, you know, we're introducing a lot of change quickly. And so 
All these technologies require us to change our policies, our procedures, to train our staff in the use of these new technologies. That's probably our biggest challenge is the pace of change. Well, Ron, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. I think uh, a lot of people, well, hopefully, you know, I think the goal would be that most Californians actually don't need your agency. I, I don't think that's a bad thing to say. You know, hopefully employment, we'd have full employment. But, you know, for those that do, it's uh, a great thing to know that the EDD is trying uh, its best to uh, modernize and, and become a much more user-friendly service for Californians. So thanks for coming on today to tell us a little bit more about where you're at with all that. Sounds great. Hey, thank you for having me on. Again, I, I'd be more than happy to, if you've got any follow-up questions, to uh, answer them for you. Sure, absolutely. Thanks, well, Ryan. Everyone else, stay tuned. We'll be back uh, pretty quick with uh, Who Had the Worst Week in California Politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. All right. Well, you know, Tim, we all know that lawmakers and electeds and public figures often get themselves in trouble by oversharing on social media. And so for today's worst week in California, we have a classic example of that, don't we? Yes. And an, a unique example in that uh, the candidate has not said that an intern screwed up and, and was handling the social media or that they accidentally brushed the like button. But he just said, oh, yeah, I did that. that. Yeah, I just did that. Yeah, I won't do it anymore. Yeah. So we're talking about Los Angeles uh, school board uh, aspirant, uh, Khalid Al-Alim, um, who has been the front runner uh, to for a seat on the L.A. County School Board. Um, but he apparently was on X, which, of course, we all know was Twitter. And uh, he liked, I guess, a heaped a little bit of praise on something from the Nation of Islam that uh, I think we could agree is probably pretty anti-Semitic. And uh, now that wasn't all, was it, Tim? And I think he also liked several uh, porn pornography accounts and was engaging in those. Uh, and I think, yeah, as far as the anti-Semitic, there's no question it was definitely, uh, I would characterize it as virulently anti-Semitic uh, and in his apology, he said, hey, you know, I've spent my whole career uh, working to fight uh, prejudice and anti-Semitism. And, you know, I don't know why I shared this. But anyway, I, I, the whole thing, there's multiple layers of this being really interesting. One of the things is how much money people spend on a school board seat in that district. It's crazy. It's crazy. Well, there's seven candidates. He's the leading one. They're looking to replace George McKenna, who's retiring from the Board of Education. Uh, in District 1. Uh, it's a historically Black district. Um, and, you know, like Al-Alim has been the favorite, and he certainly, he had got the endorsement of the United Teachers uh, Los Angeles and the, and the LA County Federation of Labor, those two unions, which is a really big deal. But yeah, they had already spent about $650,000 on his campaign. And so it's not, I think they would probably... Right now, I'm sure they're they're not feeling very good about that selection. But what are you a little bit of buyer's remorse? I would think, yeah, absolutely. So 
he's certainly having a really bad week in California politics, but I'm guessing that uh, the union is probably not feeling terribly good about this week either. So, yeah, from what I read in the in the Times, LA Times story to this morning, uh, they are they're no longer going to be funding his campaign. And the thought is that they would probably rescind their endorsement. But the process for endorsing and also unendorsing a candidate is fairly lengthy. And so even if they do remove the endorsement, it will probably take so long that it would only happen maybe a few days before the actual election. We're doing a vote by mail. Probably most of the votes that are coming in will have already been cast by that time. So yeah, they really are uh, between a rock and a hard place. Well, it is the risk we run, right? If you're going to endorse anybody publicly, you better hope that they don't do turn around and do something to embarrass you. So, um, but you know, uh, the one thing that we are absolutely sure of is we believe um, probably unequivocally here that um, Khalid Al Alim. I want to make sure I say it correctly. Had the worst week in California politics. It's true. You know, London Breed, San Francisco Mayor London Breed is breathing a sigh of relief. She looked <laughs> at her terrible poll numbers, and I'm sure her first thought was, oh, crap, I'm going to have the worst week in California politics. But uh, Mayor Breed, you were actually saved from that indignity by uh, Khalid Al-Alim. Yes, yeah, so you were You were saved. I mean, you know, and I'm sure she probably was thinking that, oh, my God, those two goofballs in Sacramento, they are, they're absolutely going to roast me this week. But uh, she's been saved. Saved by somebody who really went, uh, who, <laughs> who dove under the table and stayed there. So there you well, go. What's, what's the saying? It's an ill wind that blows no good. So, yes. <laughs> well, hey, that was, uh, thanks uh, everybody for joining us today. We'll, we'll see you uh, next week on the Capital Weekly Podcast. See you, Rich. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California.